getting people back on transit and getting people to feel safe on transit is going to be the hurdle that the MTA, that the city of New York, and every major metropolitan area in the United States will have to figure out if we're going to feasibly become carbon neutral in the next few decades. Welcome to Climate Checks, stories and solutions for fighting climate change. We are part of 350 Brooklyn, an organization that strives to counter the climate crisis through local action. We work towards a world that is just, equitable, and sustainable, and where all beings can thrive. I'm Eva Dean, she, her, your host of Climate Check. I'm a climate activist and a Brooklyn-based choreographer. On today's episode, we're talking about fossil-free transportation. Our climate activist guest is Vanessa Barrios, an urban planner from the Regional Plan Association-led initiative. Vanessa spearheads the Healthy Regions Planning Exchange that convenes a network of planners, practitioners, and advocates from 11 regions across the country to address health and equity in planning. Hi, Vanessa. It's such a pleasure to have another conversation with you. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Would you mind introducing yourself with your pronouns? Absolutely. My name is Vanessa Barrios. She, her, and I also use another pronoun. It's Sia. Sha is, um, I'm Filipino-American in Tagalog, as with many Austronesian languages, is gender neutral. So the third person pronoun Sha is used for both he and she. And I'm from Los Angeles, which is unceded Tonga territory, but I currently live in Brooklyn, New York, which is part of the traditional territory of the Lenin Lenape. Thank you for sharing that with me. So how did you get involved in the climate movement? I'm from Los Angeles. I'm born and raised. Um, And as an Angelino, uh, car culture is something that so many folks cling to. And your car is your status symbol. It means movement. It means mobility. And that is still really true for so many folks, Um, whether you're in a suburb, a city, or a neighborhood that lacks affordable, dependable, safe transit, folks will choose what is safest and most convenient for themselves. In Los Angeles, like so many metropolitan cities, the advent of the personal vehicle meant freedom, but it also means pollution. It means unsafe streets. You know, at that time when the parks, parkways and freeways were built, it required the raising of communities and thriving neighborhoods and Car dependency is something that was implemented onto us. And I think for me, as a someone who's aware of the need for climate justice, it's been very much ingrained into what I study, what I read, what I understand, and where my place is in this world. To this end, with climate justice, we might as well just, instead of calling it climate change, call it climate justice. Absolutely. And with the Regional Planning Association, what plans are you making for transportation in relationship to countering climate change? So the Healthy Regions Planning Exchange is a project that works to bring together practitioners, advocates, and community-based representatives to address 
the structural issues that influence health and equity through regional planning in the United States. The first phase involved 11 regions in the country, and it focused on discussions about how the, about the role of race and racism in transportation, housing, and the environment. The second phase just kicked off last month, where 10 of those regions are actively implementing a work plan that addresses those issues, specifically through regional planning. One of those things, again, comes to transportation. For example, our Los Angeles cohort is working on ensuring real and genuine safety in LA Metro's public transportation system. And that looks like uh, real community safety procedures um, and enabling after access to transportation. And for RPA's role in this, RPA has been, for a number of decades, has worked towards kind of ringing the bell on how planning can be used to combat climate change. And I also, usually I'd say climate resilience, but I understand that that word is actually not as, it, it, it assumes that the onus of, of combating climate change is on the community. And something I wanted to mention before is that, you know, how did you get involved in the climate justice movement, you know, I think, and even in elementary school, we talk about recycling, we talk about how our choices create that ripple effect that can affect other people in your community and in the world. And what I've realized, one, in planning, in the planning realm and talking to folks, a, a lot of the issues that can really address and change what our future can look like are through active policy you know, the people who are really making an impact are a lot of corporations. It's our government. And it's really their role. It is their responsibility to push forward policies that do promote the health and security of, of their people. Some of the policies that RPA pushes for is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector, to advance fair and effective decarbonization strategies for buildings, as well as in port facilities um, in our cities. We are also pushing for catalyzing a thriving regional offshore wind development hub, but I am not the person to talk to about the minutia and detail on that. But having these alternatives to coal and fuel, that is not just the next step, that is the step. We have such dependency on fossil fuels and it's not sustainable in no way, shape, or form. So with transportation, we need to electrify. We're going to get to New York City and how it has the largest subway system. And that subway system is powered by electricity. Mm -hmm. And now when you say it is the step, what we need to do is make sure that the electricity that powers our transportation is, is clean. clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, again, it comes from those this higher up decision makers and the folks who can influence them are the constituents. Again, for the MTA, a lot of those higher up positions are appointed by our governor. And, you know, 
thinking about how that chain of like who elects who, the people elect the governor, the people elect our elected officials, it's so important to vote. Having a fighter on on our end uh, on behalf of the city is completely necessary. But yeah, I think, Eva, you make such a good point in making sure that the electricity that powers our subway system, the electricity that will eventually power our electric bus fleet once we get there, perhaps in 2040, um, is clean. And I, I also wanted to make a point. I had just talked to one of my colleagues who's now at Transportation Alternatives. They just came out with a report specifically as we are looking to electrify our bus fleet. A lot of the bus depots will need to have electric refittings to recharge our bus fleet. But a lot of those places, a lot of those bus depots are actually in the six-foot sea level rise plain. This is such a short sight on so many, so many decision makers. We need to think, and this is something that RPA has pushed for. The sea level rise will happen if we don't change our ways. Our coastline will be dramatically changed in 50 years, and we have to plan for that. We can't be putting major infrastructure, such as uh, bus depots that uh, recharge our electric buses in places that are prone to flooding. So in order to put the charging stations to refit the bus stations, the New York State passed the CLCPA, which stands for Climate Leadership Community Protection Act. Our goal in New York State for the CLCPA is to achieve, can you fill in the blanks here? Uh, The Climate and Communities Protection Act is a bill that would mandate 50% of renewable energy statewide by 2030 and cut 100% of fossil fuels statewide by 2050. It also contains a strong equity provision to ensure that 40% of clean energy funds are reinvested in disadvantaged communities. So if our transportation, if our subways and our buses were going towards electrifying, then we need to make sure that we have the resources to get our electric energy for our transportation from clean energy. And there's another bill that's out there that we're really trying to push forward called the CCIA, the Climate Community Investment Act. And that would give the funds for us to achieve those goals that you just laid out in the CLCPA. So when you talk about policy and electing people to do the work that we the people want, This is like really important because it would be so easy for electeds, in my mind, to, yeah, we passed the CLCPA, you should be happy, but nothing's going to happen unless we get some money to fund clean energy for our transportation. Absolutely. I think that revenue source is, that is the teeth that's necessary for us to get this off the ground. You know, even before this pandemic, you know, our transit system was hold, holding on by a thread. Delays, mechanical issues, 
being on that train platform when there's like a hundred people and you're like wall to wall and there's no way to social distance. I'm not going to say that I long for those days because I don't, (laughs) but I think what's really a real issue is that in order for us to get to that phase of reducing dependency on fossil fuels and, and, and our cars, as well as ensuring that how we are electrifying our fleet and our transportation system is clean, is to get people back on transit. Um, I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, it, it got such a terrible rap and it disrupted our the largest transportation system in America. And it's currently in financial turmoil. Getting people back on transit and getting people to feel safe on transit is going to be the hurdle that the MTA, that the city of New York, and every major metropolitan area in the United States will have to figure out if we're going to feasibly become carbon neutral in the next few decades. I like to think that with every swipe, that's kind of my vote when it comes to either taking public transit or even taking the bus. I'm a huge proponent for the bus. It reminds me of Los Angeles because when I was growing up, that's all we got. Let's talk about extreme weather and patterns and how they affect transit. That's a really good question, Eva. Um, and it actually ties into the work that RPA did in partnership with Make the Road New York, which is an immigrant advocacy organization that's based out of Central Queens, as well as Bushwick, uh, Connecticut, Long Island. They have many, many organizations, community organizations that work with the immigrant community. For that project, we worked with the communities of East Elmhurst and Corona, um, as well as other low-income communities of color, to understand how they're experiencing climate change because they experience climate change far differently than any than other communities like coastal towns like Mastic Beach or on Long Island or Seabright in New Jersey. For them, you see sea level rise as the indicator of climate change. You see it, you understand it when there's a sea swell or if there's a extreme weather event, if there's a hurricane. That is an extreme example of how they can see that, how they experience that. But for communities that are more inland, the same weather occurrence can create a domino effect that affects that resident's ability to get to a job or to school. It affects their mental and their physical health as well as their safety. In our conversations with that particular community, asking how they have been impacted brought to mind a lot of the issues of why they left their communities in Latin and South America. They had to leave because either there's drought, either it's extreme weather, extreme violence. And, you know, we have this connection that people have, they don't leave their homes because they want to, they leave because they have to. Um, This is also connected to the whole instance of green gentrification. I don't, not sure if I've touched on this before, but green gentrification is the process of cleaning up polluted areas that are typically, have typically before been polluted. And and it provides green amenities that increases local property values and attracts 
wealthier residents to previously polluted or disenfranchised neighborhoods. And these amenities include like green spaces, parks, roofs, gardens. And these initiatives, they initially they they do create really great benefits, but with that increase in price for those amenities, a lot of folks have to be displaced. And this comes back, like these are parallels that happen here in New York and other places that are not this city, this grand metropolis. Again, they leave their homes not because they want to, it's because they have to. And this is a global issue of climate change. Behaviors of the things that we do here in Brooklyn affect global temperatures for those who live at sea level. And I think that's, you know, in a lot of folks think about sea level, it's like, oh, that affects Vanuatu, which is like one foot above sea level in the middle of uh, the Pacific Ocean. But you can look at the end of the A train that there are people who are living at sea level in the Rockaways. There are people who are living at sea level in Fidei. <laughs> like, we got to be real about this, right? So again, it comes back to our choices. It comes back to who we are electing to public office. It comes back to folks who are passionate about this work to become those leaders to do these things. In a previous conversation you and I had, you said, transit work and climate can't be equitable if it is not actively anti-racist. Can you give us some context to the development of New York City roadways and how they impact Black and Brown communities? This connects directly to kind of my the impetus of me becoming one a planner but also um understanding the impact of 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 climate change on 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 cities the development of our road systems in New York and throughout the region and throughout nearly every metropolitan city not only in the con- this country but throughout the world it accommodated cars and again, this is like connected to car culture. It's connected to access and mobility. And in the time that those freeways and parkways were built, it required the raising and destruction of thriving communities, thriving neighborhoods. Two examples of that is Boyle Heights in Los Angeles and also in the South Bronx. The Cross Bronx Expressway was built by Robert Moses and it plowed through the communities of Tremont um, and throughout the South Bronx. It is blamed for the worsening decay of those neighborhoods and the impacts of that decision, the impact of the deciding where that expressway is, still has health repercussions and climate repercussions to this day. There is an actual measure of less life expectancy for somebody living in the South Bronx compared to somebody who's just a 12-minute subway ride away in the Upper East Side. It's about 10 years of a life expectancy difference. And this is something that, you know, it's not accidental. (laughs) None of this is accidental. In in this day, if we were to do this, they would never, and no one in, in their right mind would think that it's okay to plow through a community and lay down a road. This gets this could be another podcast, but 
Robert Moses, he he was racist and he pushed those projects through and it divided communities. And as you say, it's it's astonishing to hear. I knew that there was a difference in life expectancy, but I did not know it was 10 years. That's really significant. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is something that I will admit and this is something that I didn't actually realize when I came into the planning field. Planning is very white. It's historically white. There's an image of the RPA assembly in the 19 in 1952 and it's in the Waldorf Astoria and it's like a banquet full of white men and there's just one white woman who's smoking a cigarette in the middle of it and I'm like that's me right there. But yeah, it's um I, I like to say, and I want I always, if I ever have an opportunity to uplift somebody, I like to uplift the fact that, you know, Black planners have been holding the keys to the most promising solutions, and we need to listen to them. You know, some of the folks who both I follow and I'm a fangirl of is Tamika Butler, who's a planner, advocate, an all-around amazing human being, uh, Dr. Destiny Thomas who is the founder of the Thrivance Institute. The work that they're doing, it connects the intersections between equity, anti-racism, organizational change, planning, and the built environment in transportation. And if it wasn't already clear that transportation and transit work cannot be equitable unless it is anti-racist, and yes, it involves the valuing of Black lives, and yes, it involves a solution towards safety without the implementation of police brutality. And it does involve the, the involvement of people who have typically been left out of the planning process. You know, planning sometimes can be seen as the policing of the built environment. What we say should and shouldn't be built and why. And as urban planners, we have to understand that a lot of the history of what we do, we come with that history, regardless of if I told y'all that I made the Cross Bronx Expressway, I didn't. But the work that I do needs to be intentional in ensuring that we address that, that we somehow create some sort of atonement because what we need to do is create trust between planners and the community in order for us to really maximize this work. What would an anti-racist city plan look like and how does transportation fall into this idea? I don't know what that looks like because the community hasn't written a anti-racist city plan. For us, if we were to do, if urban planners were to do an anti-racist city plan, the first thing that we would have to do is to admit the wrongs that we have done in the past. And we have to offer atonement for it and hand the community the keys. And I'm not saying that I'm like going to be out of a job or anything, but I do understand that, you know, there's a lot of harm that we've done in the past. And like anything, the first thing that you need to do is I'm sorry, and then we can work together. Can you tell me about how congestion pricing could help with an anti-racist transportation system? 
Well, when, in order for us to have an anti-racist transportation system, we need to have the funding mechanisms to actually get the input from the community, put the onus on electeds to do that. But in order for us to do that, we need money. Um, money for upgrades to stations, money to address areas in our in our in our region that don't have access to public transportation. Congestion pricing is a fair mechanism that will essentially price any car, private vehicle coming into Manhattan lower than 60th Street. That money will be going into a lockbox that will be used only by the MTA for specific improvements on the line. Having this as a as as a, as a means to one disincentivize uh, people going into Manhattan in their private vehicles would improve the streets all around. Nothing really is stopping a car from just driving, and I rarely say that anything is a win-win. But I feel like congestion pricing um, is the closest to it that we have. I know one of the biggest concerns is that, again, a lot of folks who are living in areas of the city that don't have readily available, safe, dependable transportation have to use their cars. Um, and, you know, again, this conversation has changed dramatically with, you know, folks now working from home. But I still think that having that mechanism to create more funding that the MTA can use and must use specifically for improvements is a win-win situation. We need to make these improvements now. We need to make the, our, our subway system is 116 years old and it shows. So we got to make these improvements and we need funding for it. Vanessa, thank you so much for how you can interconnect different components of climate change and climate justice and bringing it into our city that is coming out of a pandemic and needs to find a way to get people to trust the public transportation so that we can keep moving towards countering climate change and getting off fossil fuels. So thank you. Thank you for... Thank you, Eva, and thank you, 350 Brooklyn, for having me. It's a pleasure, and I'm excited to uh, continue on this fight with you guys. That's it for this episode of Climate Check, Stories and Solutions. Thanks for listening. To subscribe, go to 350brooklyn.org. You can also follow 350 Brooklyn on Facebook and Twitter. Climate Check is a production of the Climate Idea Exchange of 350 Brooklyn in Brooklyn, New York. Our production team is Barbara Schroeder, Michael Dondero, Alyssa Kropp, Eva Dean, and Bryn Fleur-Becker. That's me. The music you heard in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. 350 Brooklyn is a local affiliate of 350.org, a worldwide grassroots climate organization. Join us in finding solutions to counter climate change. <laughs>